Welcome to the Jesus Name News Podcast. I'm Larry. I got Derek here with me. This week, we continue to look at the Jesus Code. Specifically, we begin looking at the lost parables of Jesus. Stick with us. It's going to be a great ride. But before we get to it, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to the Jesus News podcast. Yeah, so like Larry said before the break, this week we are looking at the lost parables. And you may be asking, there are no lost parables. What are you talking about? Well, there is this chapter in Luke, chapter 15 specifically, that is called the lost chapter. Uh, and it has the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. I feel like it says something more about the state of Christianity today that we say the lost parables of Jesus when there's all these well-known stories about things that are lost and the lost chapter that's in chapter 15 of Luke. And yet even me knowing what we're talking about, I'm like, Ooh, we found something new or (laughs) Ooh, some, some crazy crackpot quote unquote prophet has come up with a new parable of jesus or something like i'm half expecting that kind of thing even though i know that's not what it is no and i mean i think that you're i think you're probably spot on because when we first came up with this idea yeah we were like oh this is gonna be really good and then i realized like wait we're still talking about something that's in the bible and i mean i mean we did name it this way because we knew people would get it would grab people's attention so yeah, full disclosure. But at the same time, these are, in my opinion, some of the best stories that Jesus tells. Um, I'm I'm going to be real with you. At, when I was studying each of these parables, I've, I've got all three of them actually done. And we'll be talking about the prodigal son and his brother in the next couple episodes. But when I was going through each of these parables, I mean, I, I was almost like moved to tears. There were a few things that I found um, because they hit home. Whether we want to admit it or not, they, they hit home. Uh, and I mean, I, you can probably hear it in my voice right now. Like I'm just thinking about some of the stuff that it, it just hits, you know, we all know someone who's lost. We all have been lost either physically or spiritually so without further ado let's get into it so luke chapter 1 verses or luke chapter 15 sorry luke chapter 15 verses 1 through 2 so larry if you'll read that all right this is the parable of the lost sheep says now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the pharisees and scribes grumbled saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. So I wanted to start out by looking at who the Pharisees were that would prompt Jesus to tell these parables. Because we all know of the Pharisees, but do we actually understand them? Do we do we know where they came from and what they believe, right? And those are vital things to understanding the context around these parables because the net Verse three, we'll we'll read it in a second, but verse three says, so Jesus told them these parables or this parable. So 
the Pharisees came from, they're technically the spiritual descendants of the Hasidians, not the those mystics from Germany, just the Hasidians. It's a group that joined the Maccabean revolt for their religious freedom. And as soon as that religious freedom was achieved, uh, they withdrew. They did not get involved with the politics of it. Uh, they stressed a strict, uncompromising adherence to Jewish law. And the Hasidians eventually faded away. And most scholars and historians agree that they likely merged with the Pharisees during the second century BC. So during this time, Jewish religious leaders and scholars wrestled with how to live in an increasingly urban trade cosmopolitan environment but also being able to maintain distinction and separation and traditions as Jews. Does that sound familiar to anybody? But yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, kind of sounds like the modern world. How do we, how do we live in a world that's so different than everything that we know of and have always known of? Yeah. I mean, it, but just like this, this leads to several sects of theological thought and priests of uh, the Pharisees being one of them now again this just goes to show that no matter what your religion is you always have these struggles of how to apply it in a modern world or you know in a present time so these pharisees though they are mostly or were mostly middle-class businessmen which kind of flies in the face of everything that i think of when i think of the pharisees yeah, the middle-class businessmen and leaders of the synagogues, but they were actually a minority of the priesthood. However, guess what? They're also the most popular of all the sects of the Jews. So this grants them a little more power than their numbers would dictate, right? So they believe that all Jews should adopt a priestly purity and they should adopt temple rituals into their lives as part of daily life, actually. So to that point, the priests believed that sacrifices in the temple were not only the, the only worship of God and not only was Jerusalem the place where God should be worshiped. Instead, they asserted that you need to be devoted in prayer, devoted in study of the law. They promoted the institution of the synagogue, and they, you know, obviously that is now when I teach my students about Judaism, I tell them the, the synagogue is where Jews worship. So the Pharisees are, can be considered the, the fathers, if you will, of the synagogue. You know, it's always weird to me when we talk about the Pharisees. I'm just like, okay, I agree with that. Okay, I agree with that. Okay, I agree. Wait, aren't these guys the bad guys? Yeah, and like every time we talk about them, like I get that yes, they were the 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 Sanhedrin was dominated by the Pharisees because the leaders of it were Pharisees and all of that. I get it, like I get all of that, but like it's just weird that when you actually talk about what they believed, so much of it was right. And. Yeah, well, yes, and you're right, because they were strict about the Sabbath, and it's very clear in God's law what you should do about the Sabbath, right? Yeah. And But the problem is that this promoted or prompted them, the, the Pharisees, that is, to build their houses in close proximity to each other because the law 
limited how far one could walk on the Sabbath. So literally the law dictated how they performed, lived, did everything. It's, it is the Pharisees who build the mikvahim in front of their houses for yeah. ritual purity and adopt it for, I mean, it, it was around, but they adopt it for a pretty regular thing, right? Yeah. So then there's this idea of oral law. And uh, honestly, this isn't a new idea because Christianity has this as well. But it's the belief that not all the laws were written into the Torah and that Moses gave oral instructions, which were passed down generation to generation. Ultimately, what ends up happening is that these laws reinterpreted the Torah uh, through generations to help fit the time, the culture, or, you know, fill in the gaps where new legislation needed to be filled in. Wait, they so, actually attributed them to Moses? And so, some of them. Some, some of them? Of them? Yeah, like, some just, of them. It, it's just, it feels so crazy to me to be like, it's, you know, the first century A.D., this is something that Moses spoke to some people who have been telling people about it for about 2000 years now, but nobody has bothered to write it down yet, but well, you should believe coming. us, but it's like, that sounds 100% not believable. Well, you have and- all of these writings and yet you're then saying this non-written stuff that nobody's written down yet. They de- they decide, I think, to, I, I can't remember what it was, because uh, it's been a while since I've studied it, but yeah. the Mishnah and the Talmud, they yeah. all get written down a little bit, and, and it has these laws in it. So it gives us some insight into how the Pharisees constructed daily life. <laughs> but either way, to the Pharisees, they're interpreting the spirit of the law, and raise your hand if you're guilty of saying the Pharisees missed the spirit of the law. I'm raising my hand but they believe that they're interpreting the spirit of the law. So they also believe that they're trying to help the law fit new times, right? They're believing that they are, you know, fitting it with culture, fitting it with the ideas that were coming about, as opposed to the Sadducees who were literalist in interpreting the law. And according to the Jerusalem Post, they had this to say, so For example, the Pharisees did not interpret the concept of an eye for an eye literally. Rather, using the oral law as a device to interpret Hebrew scripture, the Pharisees interpreted this command as demanding monetary compensation for the injury rather than the literal meaning of the text, whereas the Sadducees probably would have interpreted that literally. Hey, the the worst part about that is, like, again, I mean, technically the Pharisees are right. It wasn't literal. Like, I don't, I don't know if God really intended for them to actually be like taking people's eyes out of their heads. Well, and I immediately, when I think of eye for an eye, because Jesus says, you have heard it said yeah. eye for an eye, you know, whatever. And he says, I think, I believe it's in the same <laughs> chapter. He goes on to say, if a brother smites steals you your on coat, a, yeah. Yeah, steals your coat, give him your other one also. If he asks you to go with you one, one mile, go with him too. You mm-hmm. know, it, so not only Jesus took this a step further, right? Yeah. And yeah, but I guess I, the other thing is, is just that it is hard. Like the law was written. I, I mean, just look at the, the advances in, in money, in culture, in trade from when Moses wrote the law 
in the desert when they leave Egypt to, I don't know, 1300 years later, 1400 years later. Yeah. yeah. Something like that in, in, you know, the first century, like nothing is the same. I mean, it, nothing it is makes, the same now. Uh, and yeah, I mean, nothing is the same now. I mean, it's like, you know, like I, I believe in tithing. I tithe, but the method of tithing has the, changed. The method of tithing is so weird because they tithe their increase and they tithe portions of their flocks and they tithed, you know, the way that they did it was different than I got paid. So I take 10% of the cash. Like, but I think the spirit of the law and the spirit of the law that the way that we do it is still. Yeah, I just, my opinion. I, I, yeah, I agree. I'm not saying that's wrong or right. I'm just saying that it's an awkward fit and it's a very glaringly awkward fit that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's all I'm saying is that it's, it's, it's something that the way that it was the time it was written in and the way that the world functions now are incompatible. Yeah, because we don't keep flocks. We don't keep, yeah. we don't grow so, our own food. We have, so we, we get have our jobs. To, yeah, we, we have to come up with a way to apply that principle to our world. But there really isn't a one to one way to be absolutely sure of what that means. Right. That's all I'm saying. No. And I think that that's what the Pharisees ran into multiple times. Yeah. And that's what the Pharisees were running into. And so, you know, in, in my mind, it, it's like, yeah, they did some bad stuff, but. I kind of get where they're coming from. Well, and and that's kind of what I'm trying to get at because at the end of the day, these all are traditions. Yeah. And I'm not speaking about tithing specifically. I'm just speaking about what the Pharisees yeah, yeah. did. I'm talk that's what I'm talking about. These are traditions. And yes, these these are those same traditions of men that Jesus decried. You know, if you look at if you'll read for us, um yeah. This could be even seen as adding to the word of God in Luke chapter six, verses one through five. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. I, every time I read this, I get a little confused about what is that? What does David have to do with any of this? But the more I read it and the more I studied it. So according to the Mishnah, it says he that reapeth corn on the sabbath is guilty and plucking corn is reaping and rubbing the grain out was considered to be threshing which is another violation so in the case and this is coming from uh another part of the mishnah i believe maybe the talmud it says in in case a woman rolls wheat to remove the husk it is considered sifting if she rubs the head of the wheat it is regarded as threshing if she cleans off the side adherences, it is sifting out fruit. If she throws them up in her hand, it is winnowing. Now, obviously, these I'm trying to show you like what the Pharisees are referencing, but 
what they were repeating was tradition. It wasn't law. They were adding to the word of God and the law of God. And the reason that Jesus uses David is because he's saying it's a necessity. And the Pharisees themselves believe that life took precedence over all else. So if life was in danger, if someone was about to die, the law got put aside. Yeah. So Jesus uses the case of necessity. And certainly if the law didn't matter, then the traditions of men definitely don't matter. So by the Pharisees' own ideas, like I said, they triumphed life above everything else. And cases of necessity are always allowed on the Sabbath. And that's what Jesus is trying to show them. Yeah, I always always laugh at this story, too, because it's like, I can't recall any place where the Bible actually says the Sabbath must be on Saturday. So it's like... Jesus and his disciples could have just been like, yeah, we do Tuesday Sabbaths because we travel all the time. I think it was understood. but (laughs) I mean, it was understood, but I'm saying like, I always laugh because in my head, I'm just like, guys, there's so much stuff that can't stop. I mean, even in the first century, there's stuff that you just, you can't just be like, you know, making food is sin on the Sabbath. So Nursing mothers stop producing milk on the Sabbath. Like, this is nonsense. Like, I mean, not that the law is nonsense, but like when you take it to those kinds of ridiculous extremes. It was nitpicky. It's it's very obviously nonsensical and nitpicky. And it's the kind of stuff that people who are well off would not consider because they always have a supply of grain. Right. And they're not realizing that, you know, the poor people who barely have any grain in the first place, they might not have a backlog of grain every week. Yeah. <laughs> you're 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 right. And I think that we we run into this as Pentecostals sometimes as well with some of the modesty holiness standards and people do ask about, well, what about yeah. this? What about this? And we're like, look, but we're not going to sit here and tell you that Yeah. in this case, you can wear this or do this. And in this case, you can't. It's best judgment sometimes, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you want to know what I do for myself, I'll tell you what I do for myself. If you want to know why I do that, I'll tell you that. If you want me to tell you what you must do in every situation, I'm, I'm going to tell you to figure it out for yourself because otherwise we're all wasting our time. Exactly. But then we come to the big one, which is resurrection. And for that matter, messianic redemption. Because the Sadducees believed in neither. So the Pharisees are among the first to actually start talking about a resurrection of the dead at judgment day or in afterlife, for that matter, that souls would live on. They believed and taught a messianic redemption. And again... All these things would make them very popular among the people and give them a large degree of power, even though they may not have been the wealthiest or the largest in number on the Sanhedrin. And uh, I almost feel like though Jesus didn't like the Pharisees much, he could at least deal with them, right? I mean, they're the few encounters that I see Jesus having with the Sadducees, he pretty plainly told them that not only on their wrong, they're greatly mistaken 
about the resurrection and God's power in Mark 12. Yeah. So Jesus at least aligned with the Pharisees on some major issues like resurrection, Messiah, dedication to God outside the temple and in Jerusalem. But Jesus did not uphold or support their many traditions that laid upon that they laid upon men and women rather that didn't bring them closer to God. And I mean, in that next passage of Mark chapter 12, Jesus tells a scribe who was a teacher of the law, he was allied with the Pharisees, that he wasn't far from the kingdom of God. And that's after he asked which of these is the greatest commandment. He says, Jesus responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the fair, the scribe says, you have said well, and Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. It, and it, it's weird because as I was reading this, it's like Jesus said that himself. But when I start thinking about it, you would think that the Pharisees would embrace Jesus because on some level, he didn't like the Pharisees, the Sadducees at all. He didn't like those wealthy elitists. He didn't like those guys who are keeping the temple daily. You know, he, he made long speeches about those guys and the Pharisees, obviously. But what I find is the Pharisees may have embraced him on some level, like Nicodemus did, right? Yeah. And even to a point, I believe it's Acts 23, that Paul actually comes against the Sadducees and the Pharisees embrace Paul over that. But it's, it's, it's one of those things where. Well, Paul was a Pharisee. Yeah, he was a Pharisee, but (laughs) it's almost like the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? That's what you would think. Mm -hmm. However, the issues between Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes were centered on power, influence, and tradition. Mm Mm-hmm. Traditions that asserted an earthly redemption of the Jews, influence that helped the Pharisees eventually outlast all the other Jewish sects after the destruction of the Second Temple, and power that kept the Pharisees relevant among the people and the Sanhedrin. And ultimately, these ideas drive a wedge between the Pharisees and the other sects, namely the Sadducees, who kept the temple daily. So throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees, and to another extent, the Sadducees, were the foe because of each of these things. So maybe at one time the Pharisees were grounded, the emphasis on personal and and personal purity and, you know, righteousness seemingly is where the name Pharisee actually comes from because it means separated or separatist. And uh, I love that a little bit, honestly. But at the same time... Mm. The reason Jesus and the Pharisees clash so often is because Jesus was a threat to them, a threat to their power and influence. He was teaching something that was parallel, but also perpendicular to what they what they taught. And the Pharisees were afraid. The scribes were afraid that this man is getting so much influence, so much power. So they saw a way to kill him. Now, granted, he was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world, right? But still, the Pharisees were the guys who helped push it along. 
Well, yeah, and that gets back to one of those things of like, it's not like if all, Jesus would have come and all the Pharisees believed him and that he was the Messiah, that suddenly he wouldn't have died on the cross. Like, it, you know, it gets back to like the Judas question. Like, could Judas have repented? Because sure. Judas literally was doing what God wanted him to do. Because if Judas wouldn't have repented, wouldn't have turned on Jesus, then Jesus wouldn't have been crucified and a bunch of prophecies wouldn't have been fulfilled. So, well, and, and at the same time, when you're looking at the Pharisees, I still go back to Nicodemus. Yeah. And, 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 and to a lesser sense, Gamaliel, who's the teacher of Paul, right? I go back to these men who were, I believe John actually says he was seeking the kingdom of heaven, seeking the kingdom, looking for it to come. So for those Pharisees that were actually trying and seeking and wanting to do the right things instead of withhold, you know, hold on to power and tradition and influence, I believe they did embrace Jesus because Nicodemus did. I yeah. mean, I don't know that seems like a stretch, but Nicodemus was, according to scholars and theologians, Nicodemus is a pretty prominent figure in his time. Yeah. He's a teacher. Yeah, I was just going to say, I wonder how much of John was actually written at the Pharisees that were left. Like, John was trying to clean up the the last remaining sex and bring them over to the Christian side. Maybe. I mean, because it was after the fall of Jerusalem. So everything was falling apart. Yeah. And that was when Nicodemus gets highlighted as, as somebody who was seeking Jesus when Jesus was alive. Right. You know, so, but this is where we pick up the parable of the lost sheep. When we come back from the break. Listen, you know, we have a new podcast out called That Pentecostal Podcast. Episodes are already available. So, Larry, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what's happening over at TPP? Yeah, we saw a need for a devotional podcast in the Pentecostal realm. We saw a need just for a short, uplifting moment that we can give to people. And so we decided that we're going to do it. We're going to make one. We're going to put it out there. It's going to include us. It's going to include our new members of the team. It's going to have Derek. It's going to have me. It's going to have Adrian. It's going to have some other people. We're going to have guests. And we're going to bring to you life applicable, faith building, Holy Ghost fire devotionals every single Monday. That Pentecostal podcast is available everywhere you get your podcast. So go set it to download, set it to notify you, whatever you need to do. But don't miss that Pentecostal podcast every Monday. So welcome back to Jesus and Me's podcast. So we find that the word Pharisee means separated. So to see a man who is a teacher, a healer, and claiming righteousness, welcoming tax collectors and sinners, set the Pharisees off. 
these people were approaching Jesus. They were drawing closer to him rather than being pushed away by his teaching and commitment to God. Because in the previous chapter, Luke 14, Jesus had just finished talking about the cost of discipleship. So to them, one had to be separated from those people. They were unclean, unworthy, and some even took it as far as being traitors and wouldn't even teach them the word of God. Well, I mean, you know, remember the law, if you were, if you were unclean, right? If, if somebody who's unclean touches a cup and hands it to you and you touch the cup, you're unclean and have to go through, you have to go through a waiting period and then a ritual purification, and that's not tradition. That's actually in Leviticus. Right. And so like, that's actually in the scriptures that you have to do this stuff. So, I mean, being unclean is a huge deal. Right. And, but to understand these issues, you have to understand the honor, shame, culture that persisted and still persists in the Middle East at this time. Tax collectors obviously were traitors to the Jews and sinners. I read up on this because I was like, sinner's a broad term, right? Sinner, in my view, includes, and a lot of the commentaries and different versions of the Bible seem to support this, included non-observant Jews. And both had a bad name among the Jews. And the fact that Jesus is associating, teaching, or surrounding himself with them was damaging his character, his honor, and his dignity. And it is here that they don't understand the power or love of God. They have been so caught up in their traditions and cultures that in an attempt to understand the spirit of law, they still missed it just like they missed the Messiah. So when you read Luke chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, if you'll get that. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And it starts out, so he told them this parable. Remember verses 1 through 2, it's the Pharisees who are complaining. He invites those tax collectors and sinners to eat with him and teaches them. And it, verse 3 says, so he told them this parable. And I love that Jesus felt and saw the intentions and minds of the Pharisees and scribes in this moment. Because when I read this, I imagine Jesus looking directly at the Pharisees as he questions them about leaving the 99 sheep. I can, I know it's a little dramatic, but I imagine like the camera pointed at Jesus' face and he's like staring intently at the Pharisees. What man of you having 99 sheep will not leave the one? And then he turns around to the people. And he start and he finishes the parable, right? Like it's dramatic, but yeah. it's the way that my mind envisions it. Yeah, it makes me think. Um, my pastor said something because there used to be a culture of like 
you better not smoke on the church grounds. How dare you? Right. And I mean, like I live in Wisconsin in winter, you can't walk half a block down the driveway. Yeah. You just can't. It, it, it's three degrees out sometimes. And my pastor came in and our culture has changed a lot. And I mean, just time has changed things a lot. I mean, let's be real. The way people think in 2022 is very different than the way we thought in 1997. Right. But he's like, I mean, I love seeing cigarette butts outside the door. That means we got new people coming in. Right. Like if you don't have people in your church that have problems, you know, not that we want actually want cigarette butts on the ground outside of our churches. I get it. I'm not saying that we should, but the idea is is if there's no evidence of people who are still struggling that are just coming in and just starting out, why not? Well, are you a church or a social club? Yeah. It's like, are you a church or a social club? Because if there hasn't been a new convert, what are you doing? Exactly. And I, I know that we've already explained that the parables are something that had to have familiar imagery to the people. So in this sense, whether the people around you were sinners and tax collectors or the religious, they would have understood the imagery and theology of the shepherd. And that's why I think that there is very little expansion upon it, uh, upon that imagery itself as Jesus speaks. I mean, it's obvious because when you look at Psalms 23 and 1, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Psalms 40 and 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Ezekiel 34 says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself, I will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock. When he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Right? So this imagery is well ingrained in Jewish culture. The idea of God being a shepherd is well known, even in prophecy. So, however, unlike the imagery that the Western culture paints of this pristine sheep, that has been lost. It's all white. It's <laughs> it looks nice. It's it's a pretty picture. Like I'm sure that picture was painted in the 19th century and it looks great, right? Good little mock-up. But it's wrong. Lost sheep would have been filthy. If the sheep, and it goes back to what you said about uh, the cigarettes, cigarette butts being outside the door, sheep would have been filthy. If the sheep had been lost for a long period, that wool could make daily things like seeing, eating, drinking, and walking extremely difficult. Yeah. And the reasons for a sheep being lost could even vary. Maybe they got distracted with food or water because sheep are sheep are dumb. It's what they do. Yeah. Maybe a predator was chasing it. Maybe they were following another animal along the path. And that they got separated right but yet so were those standing by the tax collectors were pawns of rome they may have been distracted by money power and obtaining favor with roman authorities because being a tax collector gave you a steady income and typically a tax collector would have been paid a percentage of the tax that he was collected so the more taxes they collect the more money they earned which is why tax collectors would defraud people and have them pay more taxes than they had to pay. I mean, 
your own people hate you anyways, right? Why not capitalize on it? I just, I don't even see how tax collecting worked at this point in history. I don't, I mean, they had, it, it, it's the same it's, idea as today. I mean, it's a spreadsheet, but it's on like a little people piece of papyrus. But I guess that's what I'm saying is that the amount of spreadsheets that would be needed to accurately collect any sort of functional tax rate upon money that was earned, like, by definition, tax collecting in the first century would just be going around collecting money from everybody randomly. And I, I think you give the Romans a little bit of more credit, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm just saying, like, there there were there's so many ways to cheat on your taxes nowadays. Oh, I'm sure that it the the amplification yeah. of those ways to both cheat on your taxes and as a tax collector cheat the people out of money to get more taxes are massively more in the first century than they are today. And so like I would agree. it yeah. it always makes me laugh cuz I'm just like in my head I'm thinking like IRS agent that's just double checking some numbers and the reality was more like schoolyard bully that was flipping people upside down and emptying out their pockets. <laughs> <laughs> Or, you know, like The Chosen, you have Matthew who's, I love Matthew in The Chosen, but that's besides the point. I mean, he, he he might be paying somebody else to turn you upside down and empty out your pockets, but somebody's emptying out your pockets. Right. I mean, he would have, <laughs> he would have, he'd have had a Roman guard at least, yeah. but either way, these sinners, obviously, like I said, a general term. Mm-hmm. But some scholars believe that they could have been heathens, you know, Gentiles of Galilee or possibly even beyond the Jordan. Uh, others, and like I said myself, believe that these people were likely unobservant, irreligious Jews. So in either case, they may have followed others along. Maybe their parents weren't religious. Maybe their family has served idols for generations and generations. And what's interesting about that is we take that for granted. You know, I, I believe it was Japan. I, I heard a story of a missionary. Uh, a missionary in Japan talked about they were having issues with getting this mission off the ground in Japan. And what they found was they felt like they would be disrespecting their family if they went to a place that their family didn't have access to. Yeah. And when you come to like some of these idol worshipers, maybe you have something like that at work, you know, a familial type thing going on. But either way, if they're unobservant, irreligious Jews, they're part of God's chosen people, but careless of his commandments, not following his word. And obviously, you just have the typical sinner who's just plainly doing wrong in the eyes of God. In any case, these people standing by are the sheep Jesus is speaking for or of. They are lost to God. They don't consider God in their thoughts or daily life. They don't honor him what he is due. They are the they are lost to the flock as well. As outcasts, they are pushed from society, pushed from religion, and pushed from worship, and not, not by themselves only, but also by those that teach the law. Like I said, some Pharisees took it as far as not to even teach those people. Sheep separated from the flock can also become disoriented. They can become confused. 
sheep are obviously social animals and they rely on their flock for safety and guidance. And when a sheep becomes separated from its flock, it's going to become disoriented and unsure of where to go or what to do. Mm -hmm. But lastly, they are lost to themselves. Isaiah 53 and 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and let, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I'm going to use we here. We have lost our purpose and the way which God has pointed us towards. Sheep, when they are lost, cannot find their way home again. They can't do it on their own. They need help. They need the shepherd to guide them back. Mm -hmm. You were not created to fail. You were not created to be useless, and you were not created to be alienated. When sheep are separated from the flock, from their shepherd, they become anxious and panicked because they're prey animals. And they they get that way when they feel threatened or uncertain. A lost sheep can exhibit signs of distress, such as bleeding or, or running around aimlessly. It's actually been found that putting a mirror up to a lone sheep can actually decrease its stress levels. Just the mere sight of another sheep or what they think is another sheep. Vulnerable and at risk is another part that they can feel because when sheep are lost, they're more vulnerable to predators and other dangers. It may be more likely to be attacked by predators and may be at risk of getting injured or stranded in an unfamiliar environment. Their shepherd is not there to protect them and keep the predators at bay, so they become swallowed up. And so what does Jesus do? He searches for that lost sheep. Certainly an indictment on the Pharisees and the scribes standing by. So these teachers and theologians were teaching separation and devotion to God. However, they were separating from the very people who needed them for help and guidance. They were condemning and counting them unworthy of repentance, much less a relationship with the King of Israel. The mere existence of those people was a stain on Israel's purpose. So Jesus was surrounding himself with sheep that the Pharisees deemed lost forever and were unwilling to draw them back into the fold. Okay, how did I not realize that Jesus was talking about the sinners? How long have like, you been in, ch in church? But that's what I'm saying is like, I've, I've heard these parables so many times. I know he's talking about sinners in general. But like, like literally five minutes ago, it clicked in my head and I was just like, wait, Jesus is literally talking about the people the Pharisees are criticizing him for talking to. Yes. And, and that's what separated Jesus from the separatist. Yeah. But I'm just like, Hey, once it's pointed out, it's so obvious, but I feel like we don't point it out. Like, I don't, I don't, maybe it's been pointed out and I just didn't realize it or, forgot or something well but we've like, heard it so many times that we are numb to it, it does, and that's why i said when i started looking through these intent with with intention not not reading them in my daily devotion not reading them or listening to them from my pastor or whatever when i took intention with it i was yeah. moved yeah and, and I, I think we just read kind of the setup of like the pharisees question him as just the setup of the story and not actually directly relevant to why the story was said. Well, here's the thing. 
they believe that these sheep that were surrounding Jesus were damaging his righteousness, damaging his honor, damaging his worth. But all these filthy sheep didn't damage Jesus's righteousness. They didn't damage his honor and they didn't damage his worth like the Pharisees believed. After all, they, they were the reason for his birth and his ministry. Not only were they worthy, they were everything. They were worth leaving an entire flock because those nine sheep in the wilderness, they were together at least. They could depend on each other to guide, stay together, and protect from predators. Together, they could protect the weak and the young. But that one sheep, that one lost sheep was on its own. Unprotected, unsheared, unable to find its way home. So where the Pharisees were unwilling to go, Jesus was willing to go. Where the law should have been taught and devotion should have been spoken of, Jesus was willing to actually do it. He was not coming to create a community of believers that believed themselves already righteous, already separated. He was coming to create a community of believers that society deemed unworthy, unfit, unlearned, and shameful. And those people, those people, would not only worship him with truth, they would worship him in spirit because they had been forgiven of so much. Because Jesus is the shepherd who had our iniquities laid upon him. All that dirt, the mud, the thorns, the sticks and dust that covered a sheep that, that would have been lost now covered the shepherd when he placed it on his shoulders. Rejoicing. Uh, see, now I want to talk about the the ceremonial and cleanness and how that how that plays into the sacrifice of atonement of Jesus. Well, like I mean, and how getting in there with the lost is like part of how they're. And I don't know how it connects. I'm just literally like something just like in my head just went, hey, like season like we, four. We need to we need to bring Jesus to people so Jesus can get all up in their dirt so that dirt can rub off on him, and well, then he here, can go clean it on the cross. But here's the he he had all he has all that laid upon him. Yeah, the chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. Like we hear all those things, but Jesus says he lays it upon his shoulders, rejoicing. Which is what the Pharisees should do when someone came back into the right relationship with the king of Israel. Mm -hmm. Seeking to follow the commandments of the Lord. But instead, they're too worried about their honor, their righteousness, and their image to even look in the direction of those people. That is why the multitude of the heavenly host, when announcing the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, mind you, said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ our Lord. Those shepherds understood what it meant to rescue a lost sheep. They understood the searching, the toil. They understood what it was to put a lost sheep on their shoulders. They understood the work involved. And it, it just tugs at me because how many how many of us have counted someone unworthy mm-hmm. well they hmm. you don't know what 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 they've done well 
it doesn't matter. You don't, well, they're outside, like you said, smoking. Okay. At least they're at church. Yeah. Well, they're, but, but she just came off the street. She, she's a woman of the night. So? Yeah. Like, why are you worried about that? Well, yeah. And, and if they didn't have sin, if they didn't have problems, wouldn't, why, why would they need to come to us? <laughs> exactly. And like, they need us. They need Jesus because they have sin, because they have problems, because they need all of this. Like, you, you can't expect to find new converts that are already converted before you get them converted. That's like planting, I mean, planting a seed and expecting the tree to be there the next day. This is not Jack and the Beanstalk, guys. The giant thing does not grow overnight. Exactly. And and that kind of brings us to the parable of the lost coin. So if you'll read that, uh, yes. Luke 15, 8 through 10. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the, sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So that silver coin represents the soul. And I'm going to be a little bit more straightforward with this one. But when Jesus was presented with a coin, he asked those around whose image was on the coin. And he eventually said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. And even when you think of the soul, Ezekiel 18 tells us that all souls belong to God, meaning that your soul is marked with the image of God. God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. So the woman lights a lamp, which obviously represents the gospel. She enlightens those dark places of her house looking for that lost soul. The gospel illuminates. It's a city on a hill. It's what gives us our power. She sweeps that house and searches diligently. That coin could have been lost in the dirt, probably was lost in the dirt, dirty, right? Doesn't a buried $100 bill still have value? Doesn't a stained $5 bill still have value? Let's put it into our terms. Does a lost paycheck still have value to you? Just because someone's soul may have been stained and dirty doesn't take away the value. And and again, this is all an indictment on the Pharisees who saw those that Jesus is standing by as unworthy and of no value. Your value doesn't diminish just because you're lost. Just because you have a past, it doesn't, it doesn't go away. You still have worth because in the parable of the lost queen and the lost sheep, Jesus says the same things toward the end. Heaven rejoices. Mm-hmm. For the sheep, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. For the coin, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Where there is breath, there is hope. Hope that even the worst sinner could still repent. 
that even the furthest traveled and lost sinner could come back home into the church. First, we don't think of God rejoicing very often. We often view him as a serious, concerned being that's concerned with the matters of earth and has more weighty things to go on about. But he does rejoice. And here it is specifically in reference to repentance. With the sheep, Jesus added the bit about repentance, obviously because a sheep is a cheat, uh, is a sheep. It doesn't repent. But Jesus is saying, when God finds you, you must repent. We have to be careful that we don't adopt an idea that God rejoices in the destruction of souls. God hates sin, and that's obvious, but he loves his creation. Because in both parables, the shepherd calls his friends, and the woman calls her friends and their neighbors to rejoice over finding that which was lost. The Amplified Version, which tries to give us a little bit more context of what the Bible is saying, adds a bit onto the lost coin about the repentance. It says, that is, changes his inner self, his old way of thinking, regrets past sins, living his life in a way that proves repentance and seeks God's purpose for his life. And remember, redemption of mankind was the joy of the angels. It was good tidings of great joy. And if you're listening to this podcast, chances are that you claim to be part of the church. You claim repentance. And what we've explained here with these two parables should not be missed. But understand, these parables were spoken for those who were standing around. The tax collectors, the unobservant Jew, the the heathen, the sinner. Yet these parables were spoken to the Pharisees and the scribes who complained that those people were hearing the word of God and being taught. They complained that someone who knew the commandments, taught in the synagogues and claimed righteousness would be surrounded with lost sheep and lost coins, who for all their wrongs were still counted a value by the Son of God. And our mission is not to be separated from anyone, but to be separated to God, making his rejoicing our rejoicing, his mission our mission, his work our work. And next week, we're going to finish out the rest of Luke chapter 15. Well, part of it, talking about the prodigal son and what exactly made him a prodigal. What drove him to the slot and that relationship of the father to the to his prodigal catch it next wednesday we'll see you next week